Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. And today Jason is looking at Acts chapter 4, we're in verses 23 through 31, as he continues in his book of Acts series, in this part 18, in a sermon he's entitled, A Praying Church. Let's join Jason now in his sermon. Well, good morning and Happy New Year to you all. I am Pastor Jason, the, the senior pastor here, and we are working our way through the book of Acts. And and. I just praise the Lord for the book of Acts. Each week, the Lord gives me new treasures to behold in His Word that I hadn't fully grasped the significance of before. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And today we will be looking at verses 23 to 31. And the sermon title for today is A Praying Church, for that is what we're going to see the early church being, characterized, constituted by, and a challenge to you and I because of the fact that they are such a praying church. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their hearts and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to be the teacher, to be the guide this morning that you would lay me aside and that you would speak to us through your word, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to use your incredible word, your powerful word, your inerrant, your inspired word in each of our lives that we would leave here today changed. For it's in your matchless name, the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Now, I I believe that there have been many churches that we could have characterized as a praying church, and there's probably many churches today that are praying churches that you could characterize, hey, that is a praying church. They're all about praying. They're all about praying. 
But the difference about this church is this church had the right focus. And that's what we're going to see today. This church had a focus totally centered on God and His Word on Christ and exalting Him. Being used by Him. Obeying Him. And so what we're going to see today is, is we're going to see this focus. First, we're going to see a focus on the body. And if you like to go ahead and fill in the, fill in the blanks right away, you can do that now. I'm going to let you cheat. So you could fill these in, in in your church bulletin if you want. A focus on the body, we'll see that in verse 23. Then we'll see a focus on the greatness of God in verses 24 to 28. A focus on, the, on their need for God's help in verses 29 to 30. And finally, a focus on the task in verse 31. We have to recognize that long before this time in chapter 4 of Acts, we've already seen an emphasis on prayer. We've, we've already seen this group, this, this church, gathering together in prayer even before Pentecost. Back in chapter 1, that they were praying, seeking the Lord before Pentecost. And then when we, when we moved to chapter 2, verse 42, and the, and the church grew, we, we saw that, that there were certain things that they were all about. That, that they wanted to do as their practice. And what were those things that was, well, what we just enjoyed with one another now? Communion. They remembered the Lord's table. They spent time in God's Word. That's what they were centered on. They spent time in fellowship with one another. And then the final thing that it says in Acts chapter 2 was that they spent time in prayer. And then in chapter 3, you will remember that, that the very hour when Peter and John were going into the temple and they performed, the Lord performed this miracle on this paralyzed man through them, that was indeed the hour of prayer. And now in chapter 4, we're, we're going to see again an emphasis on prayer. That this indeed was a praying church. But what we saw before in, Act, in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, and even in chapter 3, it, prayer is, 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 is emphasized in a very general sense. We're, we're not given a bird's eye perspective or, or a fly sitting on the wall of what they actually would have prayed until we get to this section. And, and what we are going to see is a real clear in specific look at the church, as even in the very words that they pray are given to us as an example for exactly how and what they said in meeting with one another. We'll see that the members of Christ's body here, when they face opposition, they face it together. They're they're not in this alone as lone soldiers in an army but as a united community of believers that's much stronger together than it is apart. And the best way to face opposition is is through what God provides, through His Word, through His Spirit, through one another, and through having a right focus. So let's look first at this focus on the body. Verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Again, as is the case so often, Luke is is tying in what just preceded with now what he is going to get into. And he does this by saying this phrase, when they had been released. That, that, word, that verb released is the same one used just a couple verses before this in verse 21 when it says that the Sanhedrin let them go. 
It's, it's the idea that, okay, having been freed, now we catch up on the story as to what happens next. And what do they do? And the first thing that we see, and, and it's emphatic in the Greek, and it gives us the idea that this happened right away, they went to their own companions. And yet if your Bible is like mine, that the term companion is, is italicized. Why? Because it's not in the Greek. They added it in order to make it understood. Really what it literally says is they went to their own, period. They went to their own. What, what does that mean? It means it went to, they went to fellow believers. To the church body that they had already been gathering with and enjoying life together with. Preaching the good news together. Praying together. No doubt worshiping together. That's where they went. They didn't go back to the people, which I believe is being contrasted here in, in chapter 4. Because what we see over and over again up to this point is this idea of the people. That's who Peter is preaching to. If, if you turn back to chapter 4, verse 1, as they were speaking to who? To the people. Verse 2, they were teaching the people. Verse 7, they began to inquire, by what power and what name have they done this? Rulers and elders of the people. Verse 8. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. Verse 17. When the Sanhedrin is talking, so that, that they, it will not spread any further among who? Among the people. There's so much emphasis being placed upon the people, but at, at this point, when they're released, they don't go back to the people and begin preaching. They go back to their own. Why? Because they needed to be encouraged. And they needed to encourage, as we're gonna see. But who are these companions? Who, who is it that make, that makes up this group their own? Commentators are all over the place on, on, on how they look at this. Some would say, oh, it's, it's the entire group of believers that have been saved since chapter 1, which would make the group up to and maybe even exceed 20,000 people. That seems like a bit of too high of a number for this kind of setting. Others would say, oh no, it's the, just the apostles. And yet we know from Scripture and even what we're going to see in verse 31, that it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not speaking of just the apostles. And we know from Acts chapter 6 that, and chapter 8 where we see Stephen and Philip not being apostles, being used by the Lord to be involved in evangelism. So, so it's not just the apostles that, that the Lord is using. And I don't believe it's just the apostles that we're meeting. It was a group of believers gathered together for the purpose of encouraging one another. Very much like what we would like to do here at RBC as far as these community groups. Why? So that when hardships come and, and, and one of us are having a hard time, you can open that up to that body that you have spent the last so many months with, getting to know, praying with. And so what do Peter and John do as they go? It says that they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. This, this word report actually has a nuance of meaning where, where it shows emphasis on the source of who is doing the reporting. So it's revealing that, that Peter and John were, fir, were giving their first-hand account of exactly what happened. And, and notice, too, again, who they go to. They, they could have gone to their family. They could have gone to all sorts of different places, but they go to the church. They go to the body. Why? Because they knew that this body would pray for them and this body would 
care for them. Is that the kind of body that RBC is? Are are we a body that prays and cares for one another? How would you answer that question? This is why we want to start these groups. So that we can pray and care for one another just as these guys are doing. Notice also their attitude. You don't see any verbiage or words used in here that that allude to the fact that they're when they're speaking and they're reporting, that somehow they're dejected, that somehow they're in fear. It, it, it seems that they're more excited about what is going, and it's more of a a report of thanksgiving, a report of God's grace. And if and if I had been there, I would think it would look something like this: Hey, you guys, listen. We had an opportunity to go before the Sanhedrin, and we're not dead. And we were able to tell them about Jesus. And the more that we talked about Jesus, the more they recognized, hey, we had been with Jesus. And they ended up saying that, well, we can't speak of Jesus anymore, but that's okay. And, and how do I know that the report was so positive? Well, it's because of what they pray, what they pray and what we see next. As they focus on the greatness of God. I think that if Peter and John had come and their report was all doom and gloom, they wouldn't have been thinking in terms like this. Look at verse 24. And when they heard this, meaning everyone that they were reporting to, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is You who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. When they heard this, they lifted their voice. That means to raise to a higher place or a position. To lift up, to take up, to pick up. It can literally mean lifting up an anchor from a boat so it can then go on. Or it can mean figuratively as it is used here to lift up your eyes in prayer or your voices in praise. This word voices is interesting. In the Greek, it's singular. So it should have been translated, they lifted up their voice. So it's not the idea that 300 people were lifting up their voices at one time and total confusion and chaos was happening is that would go against something like 1 Corinthians 14.33, where, where God lets us know that, that we're supposed to meet in a way that, that's honoring to Him, not full of disorder, but in an orderly fashion. So I believe what, what it's depicting is one person praying on behalf of everyone. And they had one mind, one purpose, one impulse. How do you know that? Because it says they were with one accord. Don't miss the response here. Peter and John come and they start off recounting God's grace in their lives, protecting them, letting them know, man, this looked like it wasn't going to work out for good. God saved us. God is in this. God will go before us. And as they recount God's grace in their lives, protecting them before the Sanhedrin, how does the entire body respond? They respond in a worship service. They respond in praise and adoration to God. And should we not be doing that with one another? I believe one of the things that needs to happen in these community groups will be a time of sharing fresh bread like we do every Monday in our staff meetings, where we recount what God has done in our lives throughout the last week. And sometimes I don't have anything to share, but I'm so encouraged by what another staff member has to say that I, man, it gives me hope for that next week. 
And that's what we need with one another. And I believe that's what happened here. That Peter and John encouraged them so much that they just couldn't help but stop praising the Lord. And so what did they do? They praised Him. In fact, they prayed. Look look at how, how it says it in, in verse 24. The last part of it. it said, And said, O Lord, that's prayer language. O Lord, it is You who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now the NASB says, O Lord. If you have an ESV, you notice it says, Sovereign Lord. And I believe that's a better translation for this term because this term does connote the idea of God's sovereignty. The fact that God is the absolute master. This is the Greek word despota, which is from our English, we get our English word despot, which might have some bad connotations for us, but for them it didn't. It was the word used to describe a slave owner who has so much power, in fact, absolute power that cannot be questioned. Here it's referring to God having absolute authority over His created universe as well as His beloved church. And then they go in and they talk, whoever this is says, it's you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in. That that was almost a direct quote from the psalm that we read earlier. As a body, right? Psalm 146. The psalm gives these characteristics of God with the purpose and the intention that It would give confidence to those who are oppressed that God will indeed help them. As they what? As they reconsider the most awesomeness of of their God, His perfections, His attributes. And really what's going on here is as as they focus on these aspects of God, on, on His perfections, on His omnipotence, on all these things that He created, the intention is to is to for everyone to build a larger view of God. That they would see God for as huge as He is. And if we truly understand how large God is, then when we'll, we'll see just how much greater He is than anything we find ourselves running up against. Such as financial burdens, health issues, family struggles, or, or, or what have you. Why? Because we recognize just how big our God is and that He can indeed handle that. So so how do they start things off? They start off with expressing God's power and His preeminence. That God is over all things and above all things. And this first aspect of their prayer is on giving God praise. They spend time meditating and extolling on the perfections of God. They began by by reminding themselves who it is they are praying to. What God has done and who God is. And then they go on in 25 and 26 and and they focus on what God has said. Look at verses 25 and 26. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why the Gentiles rage and these people devise futile things? The king of the earth took their stand. The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. We see first here that they recognize that the Old Testament Scriptures, Psalm 2, who they, who, whoever this is, ends up quoting. He recognizes that this is God's Word. That this is the inspired Word of God. It wasn't merely David who penned these words, but it was the Holy Spirit. It was His power his knowledge that used David. And that lets us know just, man, how incredible God's Word is. 
the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. When we pray, and when we find ourselves in tough circumstances, we need to see these circumstances in the light of God's Word. That's what they do. They take their circumstances and they take God's Word and allow God's Word to light upon their circumstances so they can see it for what it is. For what their circumstances, how it pens God right into the picture of their circumstances. Why? So that they can have confidence. That's the only way these guys can look at this situation the way they look at it and have this kind of confidence. And so what do they say? They say, why did the Gentiles rage? That's a word used to describe the noise of a wild and spirited horse. That, that it makes this noise as, as it wants to trample and toss its head as it's either beginning to start a race or someone is trying to use the reins on it and doesn't want that person to do that. In the end, horses must accept the discipline of their master, much like the nations, the people, the kings, one day will all submit to Christ. And we see too that the things that they devise the plans that, that these that are against the Christ come up with, that they are deemed futile, meaning mindless, empty. All their plans come out to nothing. They're trying to stop God's plan, but they cannot. These verses express the confidence that these believers had, that the problems that they face, which they faced right there and then, that they really were just an expression uh, and an extension of the very opposition that Christ as well had already endured. And then they recognized that it was part of God's will, part of God's purpose and plan. And yet next what we see is that whoever is praying, he reveals that Psalm 2 had a partial fulfillment with Herod and Pontius Pilate. Look at verses 27 and 28. As he takes God's word from back then and David and the Gentiles and, and the kings. And now he applies it to right here and right now what they have seen in their lives. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. First, he recognizes who Jesus is as he says that he's what? He's your holy servant. No doubt pointing back to Isaiah 52 and 53 that they would all recognize, oh, that's who he's talking He's talking about the suffering servant. He's talking about Jesus, who is the Messiah, whose name literally means saving ones, the Savior. And then he also mentions who raised their heads up against him as his enemies. As he says, first Herod, who could be representing all the kings, Pontius Pilate, who represents the rulers, along with the Gentiles. And then he says, what? Then he says, and the peoples of Israel. Why? Because even though the people of Israel are God's chosen nation, in this present age, if they choose not to accept the Christ as they did here, then they are no different than unbelieving Gentiles. That they have indeed turned their backs on their own Messiah. But even in that, even though we see this happening and we see Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and and the people of Israel 
doing what we would think is such a, a, a terrible act, we see that it was all done by the hand of God and for His purposes and the things that He predestined to occur. That none of this takes God by surprise. The Hebrew metaphor, when it talks about your hand, of course God doesn't have a hand. What, what it means is it's referring to His divine power that was manifested over and over again by the things that He did as, as miracles back in the Old Testament. So it represents God's will and His power. And these verses together, they teach us that the wrath of man could never operate outside of the sphere of God's control. And that He is going to use all these things, even though they look so bad, for whatever God purposed. And you'll remember that when we started the book of Acts, I told you about this little Greek word that meant it was necessary, that it had to be fulfilled. Well, it's the same idea that's being communicated right here. That this idea of God being sovereign and God working all things out according to His purpose and His plan, it's not new. It's something we've seen in every chapter. Right in chapter 1, we saw it with Judas Iscariot. That even though he turned his back on his own Messiah, it was all part of God's plan. That in chapter 2, 23 to 36, we saw that even though the Romans were able to hang Jesus on a cross and kill Him, that that was still part of God's plan. That was still part of His purposes for redemption. And then in chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we saw with the Sanhedrin, when they disowned their own Christ, their own Messiah, that that still fell within God's revealed plan. His predestined plan. That's how great God is. And we see this in the life of Joseph as well, right? that he uses something that looks so bleak, so bad, so wrong, and he uses it for good, just as we're seeing here. So notice how they, how they recall how, how not only God's Word speaks to their particular situation, but then also how the things that they have experienced reveals to them that this pattern of opposition that had already come to Christ, that had already been talked about through David, that now is coming to them. And really what they were gaining was a divine perspective on suffering and persecution. And and we can see this next in in the way that that they respond, which is just a crazy way to respond. Look at at verse 29 as what we're going to see is a focus on their need for God's help. And this is what they pray. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. This phrase, take note of their threats, literally means it's, it's something more like, consider their threats and act accordingly, God. They recognize they're not in charge, God is. But they also recognize they need His help. And so they don't come and make demands of God. They're not demanding anything. They're approaching Him as bondservants. That's... The, the translation is, is actually stronger than that. In the, in the Greek, it's doulos, which is the word slave. They're saying, we're your slaves. God, whatever your will is, that's what we want. You empower us to do what you want. That's what we're looking at. And just that in itself, if that is all that they had said, would probably be enough mind-blowing for the fact that they had just left the Sanhedrin. But, but think about what they don't ask for. Think about what they don't say. They don't ask that their enemies would be punished. That's probably what I would have asked. 
Oh God, you handle this, but wipe them out. Or, or better yet, God, give me a place to, to hide. Can you give us, man, somehow blind them to, to where we're staying so we can escape out of Dodge? They, they don't ask for that. They don't ask for less persecution, which is probably what I would have asked for. They don't ask God to just take away their enemies. Instead, they ask God to grant them more boldness and more confidence. Their concern wasn't about the danger around them or their own safety, but about their ability to do what? To serve and proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They're really concerned with two things. On the one hand, they're concerned with the work of the Lord, and on the other hand, they're concerned with the glory of the Lord. That's what they were all about. And so they asked for things that that actually will bring more confrontation. They'll bring more persecution, not less. They're ramping things up and they know it full well. The threats from the religious leaders, they, they were meant to silence the church. But it actually does the complete opposite. It riles them up. In a time of threat, prayer, and we see this here, can be a rediscovery of the sovereign God who wins by letting our opponents win and then transforms the expected result. That's how incredible our God is. He can actually allow the enemies of God to have their way and use that by transforming it into something great. And that is exactly what He had done with Christ and that is what He's going to do in this situation. But the believers don't just ask for boldness. Look at what else they ask for in verse 30. While you extend your hand to heal and, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The function of these signs and wonders wasn't to authenticate the message because the message was Christ's. That didn't need any authentication. That's, that's what we have in our hands. What needed to be authenticated were the messengers themselves to prove that they were the actual representatives of Christ that they were indeed His disciples, His apostles, His spokesmen. And the fact that they could do these things was revealing to everyone, okay, yes, we are who we say that we are. Just as Christ did these things, we're now doing these things. But notice, it's never just miracles by themselves. It's always a miracle with the idea that they're going to preach. This isn't so much a request as it is a prayer of faith. Knowing how God can and will work. But notice the nuance here. They're not asking for themselves to do these miracles. They're not saying, and please give me the gift of miracles so that I can do this. They understand that Jesus is the one that does the healing, that He is the one doing the miracles. And yet He is in heaven, and even though it is by His hand, He works through His people. We should be delighted in the power of God, not because He's used me or you to display it. It isn't about how greatly God used you or used me, but how great our God is. That He should be the one exalted. Man, I would love to see a healing ceremony where somebody said, we're not taking any money, we're not doing anything. And as they say in Papua New Guinea, that this guy just shut his mouth, gave glory to the Lord, and somebody actually was healed. But that isn't the case. Instead, they just elevate their own name above 
the name of Christ, who was supposed to be the one doing the healing. And what's so cool is I'm sure that when they prayed this, there was I wouldn't think there was any way they were thinking this was going to be answered this quickly. But look at what happens in verse 31. As the God of grace comes. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. So when the prayer is completed, we see really three signs. We see the place where they're praying shakes. We see them filled with the Holy Spirit. And then finally we see them speak the Word of God with boldness. Now it's funny, some people just like to explain everything away and they look at this and they say, oh, that wasn't a real earthquake. And yet the reality is in the Greek, that's exactly what it says. It's a real shaking. And it lets us know that, that it actually happened at a certain place in a geographical location. You put those two things together and literally you can't get away from it. It's talking about a real earthquake. Now the significance of the earthquake, I don't know. Did it extend all the way through Jerusalem? Was every house shaking? Was it just there shaking? I don't know. The the importance is the fact that it shows God's presence just as it did back in Exodus 19.18 with Sinai and all the shaking there. That God was doing something that they would know. And what does He do? He, he again fills them with the Holy Spirit. Not speaking of a second blessing. Not speaking of second Pentecost. Not a baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of that happened previously and we don't see any of the same things happening. We don't see the tongues coming. We don't see anything that remotely looks like what we saw at Pentecost. Why? Because this is not the same thing. This is the second time that we see recorded where these people are then filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they are given this boldness, this confidence to preach. But also recognize what else we don't see. We don't see the speaking in tongues, right? They just spoke in their normal language. Much as Acts 4.8 with Peter there. It's not every time that you see something happening in Acts that tongues happens. It's actually only so many times in the book of Acts that we're going to see tongues. It's not that prevalent and that prominent. But the end result here is, is that they proclaim the gospel with boldness. Remember this boldness, it means to tell it all. That's what had the, the, the Sanhedrin so confused because these guys were telling it all with authority in a way that, that just didn't make sense to them. And that's what they are doing now. And this is what we are to do. We're not to hide the gospel in, but we're to let it out because it's the greatest news on this earth. So what have we seen today? We've seen the singular vision, the singular purpose, this clear focus of the early church. First, it was the focus on the body, them gathering. Peter and John recognized that they needed the body and they wanted to encourage the body. Then we see a focus on the greatness of God, recognizing His sovereignty, recognizing His power. And then they pray on this focus of their need for God's help and asking Him to accomplish His purpose. And then finally, their prayers are answered and God enables them to focus on what? On the task that God had given them to preach His Word and to preach it with boldness and that's exactly what they do. So one question that we could ask ourselves from this text is, 
So Pastor Jason, is this church in the book of Acts any different than Christ church today? Should it be? And I would say no. Why not? Because we're talking about the same God that they pray to is the same God that we pray to. The same God who empowered them is the same God who empowers us. The same God who gave them the Holy Spirit is the same God that indwelled those of us who trusted Christ as our Savior and dwells us with that same Spirit. And, and that Spirit, the Holy Spirit that controlled them is the same Holy Spirit that controls us. So what can we do with this? Instead of giving you points to ponder this week, I, I thought, okay, I'll give you some challenges to consider. Three challenges to consider. Consider the apostles' desire to immediately go to the body and get them involved. Are you committed to getting involved in the body of believers here at RBC? Do you desire that? Maybe you already are totally plugged in. Praise the Lord. You can get plugged in more. And you can be a blessing to others. And I can guarantee you that there are many who are not plugged in. Number two, consider the early church's response of prayer to Peter's report. Are you committed to praying for RBC? Praying for the missionaries that we support, the churches that they're involved in? Number three, consider how the early church began to speak the word of God with boldness after God answered their prayers. Are you committed to being used of the Lord here at RBC in whatever way that He wants to use you? Because He does want to use you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we stop and we just acknowledge what a wonderful, great, gracious God You are for how You communicate Yourself to us. We thank You for the lives of these believers and the things that we can learn from them as we look into Your Word, Your Holy Word, Your powerful Word. And we pray that You would continue to shape us, to mold us into the image of Your Son, and that You would give us a clear understanding of what we as a church are supposed to be all about and what we are supposed to be doing. For it's in the matchless name of our risen Lord and Savior that we pray. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.